If you will take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 12, we'll be picking up where we left off last week in verse 22. So Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Let me give you some context where we're at as you turn there. Remember last week we considered the danger of wealth and its seductive power over our lives. We saw Jesus present this truth through the parable, the story of a rich man that had things that he had acquired on the earth. And the wealth that he had accumulated stood in the way of heavenly investments. And of course, unbeknownst to him, after he acquired all of his wealth and set his soul up to prosper, that very soul was required of him by God, and he left all of it behind. Remember the final words of our sermon from last week in Luke chapter 12, verse 21, when Jesus says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. These things are opposed to one another. Earthly possessions and heavenly possessions. It's very unlikely that you'll have one and the other also. In both our sermon from last Sunday and today, Jesus is teaching us about provision. Last week in The Rich Fool, we see that, that those that are greedy can never get enough. This morning, we look from the opposite perspective and see that, that worry is the fear that we may not have enough. And so today, we want to see through the text that those who trust God and invest their treasure in heaven have nothing to fear. I hope and I have been praying that more than anything this morning, we would see a heavenly Father that loves us dearly and has compassion upon us. And because of these things, there is nothing that may befall us that should cause us fear. So let's turn to the text now. Will you stand with me out of reverence for God's word? And let's read together, beginning in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as this, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into, into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all of the nations of the world seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, 
and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. Will you be seated? In 1907, a man by the name of Lord Baden-Powell, an English soldier, put forward a motto statement for scouts in the English army. It was simply, be prepared. The next year, he published a book called Scouting for Boys, which became the first textbook of the Boy Scout movement. The point of Baden-Powell's statement was to make sure that you always had what you needed, whether that was food or extra socks or spare batteries. But what happens when you forget something? What happens when you aren't prepared? What happens when you don't have the things that you need? This is one of the most fundamental fears that every person experiences, although it takes different shapes. For some, what if I don't get married and have a spouse that loves me? I need that. For others, what if I can't have a child and experience the joys my heart longs for? What if I can't find a job and end up in poverty, not being able to care for my basic needs, much less that of my family. We all fear this idea of being caught without the things that we need. And Jesus knows that we will be tempted to worry over these kinds of things. And so he speaks encouraging words to his disciples in our text this morning and to us. They give us tangible answers to the question, what should I do when I worry? And so I'd like to present to you three truths from our text this morning to treat anxiety. Three truths to treat anxiety anxiety. Let me give them to you now. I'll pray for us, and then we'll work through the text together. Number one, your life is valuable to God. Number two, your needs are provided for by God. And finally, number three, your heart will follow your treasure. And so we'll consider your life, your needs, and your heart, these fundamental things together. Will you pray with me and let's ask the Lord's help. Our gracious Father in heaven, your scriptures say, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. We know this truth and we believe it, but we also know that our own weaknesses um, hinder us from fully trusting your care. 
And so, Father, we pray for your grace and ask that you would help us to know your meticulous care for us this morning. And that by knowing it more fully, we would have greater confidence to say, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. First, let's consider that our life is valuable to God. Jesus begins this section on anxiety by presenting two parallel lesser to greater illustrations. And Luke is using this to press into this idea that we are valuable to God. He says first in verse 24, consider the ravens. Consider the ravens. Look, observe, watch how the ravens behave. Now, Old Testament law taught that ravens were unclean and worthless. These were creatures that scavenged the city looking for dead carcasses to consume, trash to filter through and find food. There's nothing attractive about a raven, and even less so in the eyes of God who sees them as creatures, unholy, unclean creatures, his people not should not come into contact with. Jesus adds to this idea when he says, they do not sow, they do not reap, they do not store up food, they have no provisions in barns for later when times are difficult. Every meal for the raven could be the last one because there is no plan for what comes next. You think about the ravens compared to the ants in the Proverbs. When the Proverbs say, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying, Go to the raven, consider its ways and be wise. He's saying instead, Look at the raven. And how little wisdom there is. And yet, God feeds the raven. God knows what the raven's daily needs are and provides food at just the right time. And Jesus takes this idea, this truth, and draws the connection to our own lives. And he says, of how much more value are you than the birds? This would have been an obvious statement. The the people listening, his disciples, would have said, well, of course, of course we're more valuable than the birds to God, these these unholy creatures. So maybe we could even summarize Jesus' point by saying, if God knows the needs of unclean, unholy birds and is willing to grant them their need for food, how much more will he do those, those things for his own children? This is the greater, or the lesser to greater push. If he's going to do it for this lesser thing, for you, how much more so will he do this? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He next goes to our own insufficiency. When he says in verse 24, 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus' point is that our worry changes nothing about our circumstances. And this is a truth we know. 
No counselor is ever going to tell you after you've described your greatest fears. You know what you need to do is go home, sit on your couch, and worry a little bit more about that. Nobody's going to say that because we know that it doesn't help. And yet, we're a people inclined to anxiety. Why do we behave this way? Perhaps it's because we think we have more control of our lives than we actually do. This is the point that Jesus makes here. Which one of you, by being anxious, can change anything? You can't even do something as small as adding extra time to your life. You think you're going to change the bigger circumstances that you're anxious about? You're not. We're weak people in need of grace and mercy, just like the raven. We're in need of God's provision, just like the raven. We're not in control like we are tempted to think that we are. And since this is the case, Jesus says, if then you are not able to do such a small thing as this, why are you anxious about what remains, about the rest? Brothers and sisters, the internal peace that we long for, that that combats our own anxiety, is not a product of human striving but of learning to surrender all of life into the hands of a faithful and caring father. If you want to fight anxiety, consider the father's care for the ravens. This is not all Jesus says. He illustrates again another lesser to greater argument. Consider the lilies. The second illustration, the flowers and the grass. These things are completely passive from our perspective. They shoot up and then we mow them down. It doesn't seem that they have any ability within their own being to create anything, to manage their own needs. They do not think. They do not walk. They don't have social media accounts. They have virtually no control over their existence and their existence is very short. He says it's alive today and burns tomorrow. Flowers in the grass, even more insignificant than the unclean birds. Yet Jesus tells us that God clothes the grass and the flowers of the field. And if he does something as generous as that to flowers and grass, how much more will he do for his children? As beautiful as flowers can be, we are to God more valuable than these things. But why does God treat us with such care and generosity? Why are we valuable to God? Well, the first reason is, of course, that we're made in God's image. Genesis 1.26 tells us this very directly. When we read that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. 
We see a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 9, that God attaches a value to human beings in the context of their own death. He says, if someone is killed, the person that killed them should also be killed because man is made in the image of God. There is a value to humanity because of our ability to image the creator of all things. Psalm 139, 14 says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We are wonderfully made by God and made in his image. But this is not the only reason that God values us. He values us also because he has adopted us as his children if we are believers and followers of his son, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John, in the very first chapter, John writes, He came to his own, that's Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. There is a value that God places upon our lives because we're created in his image and also because we are his own children. Commentator Kent Hughes summarizes these two realities when he says, if we know him as Savior and Lord, we have double paternity. He is our Father creator and our Father regenerator. Now, it's important for us to pause for just a moment to consider who is Jesus talking to when he's speaking about uh, grass and birds and flowers. You see in verse 22, of course, it's to his disciples. This has shifted from what we saw last week when Jesus addresses the crowds. And so the kind of intimacy, the kind of love, the kind of care that God has for his followers, his disciples, his children is different than the kind of favor and value God has on those who have rebelliously turned away from him. Let's consider, how does God treat his children, especially those that may be caught in some type of fear? The prophet Isaiah gives us wonderful words in chapter 43, verse 1, when he says, O Israel, the one who formed you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through the deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The fires will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as a ransom for your freedom. I gave Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours because you are precious to me. You are honored and I love you. Do not be afraid for I am with you. This is the relationship God has with his children. The blessings of God, the provision of God that we'll consider in a second, maybe chiefly his presence with us. I love the new song that we're singing right now, the new hymn called I Will Trust My Savior Jesus. The first verse has been such a help for me 
in the last few months. It reads, I will trust my Savior Jesus when my darkest doubts befall. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. Let's not kid ourselves. Trusting God is hard. And a lot of times we fall short of trusting him and that leads to anxieties. And so I want to offer you a few application points when we consider God's value of us. What might we do when we fall into moments of anxiety? Well, here are a couple of things. One, I think we can be encouraged by fresh counsel. A lot of times, the people that we hear the most, we become almost callous to. Much like a guitarist that plays strings, has calluses on his hands, we have to be intentional to recognize those things and to overcome them. But there is great encouragement sometimes when we find voices that are fresh, perhaps a new book or song or even a friend that we've never talked to about things of the Lord, but we know they know them. Fresh perspective can be encouraging and remind us of the things that we're anxious about aren't worth being anxious about. A second thing is to use music that revives the soul. I think King Saul provides such a great example of this. A king that was overcome by anger and anxiety finds reprieve in the songs of David. I think that we can as well. But perhaps most importantly, we can memorize scripture. And Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 5 is a great place to start. That's the passage I've just read this morning. Perhaps we need to get away from the, the social media accounts we have and the news outlets we have experienced. These only lead to anxiety, brothers and sisters. And instead, find rest in times of silence and solitude with the Lord. We need to read our Bibles because this is where we find God speaking most clearly. In moments of anxiety and fear, sometimes scripture passages can feel um, unhelpful. But Ed Welch speaks directly to this and he says, our goal is to persist in listening to God's words until we really hear them and they speak of God's comfort and his healing to our souls. Let's move on to point number two. Number two, your needs are provided for by God. Notice in verse 29, we see here, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Jesus, Jesus of course, is speaking to his disciples about being worried about finding the basic necessities of life. And we have to admit here, we probably can't truly relate to the kind of fear and anxiety these disciples had it seems the only fear and anxiety that I have wrestled with when it comes to eating is choosing one thing amongst many on a menu at McDonald's. Our anxiety is not that we will uh, not have enough, but is often that we have too much. And yet, Jesus' words still apply to us. The idea of seeking in this passage is that of searching for something that, that you long to find. So when Jesus says, do not seek what you are to eat, there is a desire accompanied with this idea of searching. The thought of, I must have this or I will die, is motivating 
the seeking. And he contrasts that with what the world does, right? In verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. So one of the contrasting uh, elements between the church and the world is that the church seeks after worldly things and believers do not. There should be that difference at least, especially in the case that we find ourselves in in an affluent society. The church in America should be markedly different from the rest of our culture and that be evidenced by the fact that we seek after Jesus and not things of this world. The reason we have a freedom from worry over these earthly possessions is because our Father knows that we need them. That's exactly what he says. Do not seek after these things as the nations do, for your Father knows that you need them. Implied in that is, yes, and indeed he will provide for them. And so you don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. So what should we be seeking after? Jesus, of course, explains, instead of seeking things of this world, we are to seek things that are heavenly, seeking the kingdom of God. And in this way, our Father frees us from seeking things that attach our lives to worldly possessions. And he does not provide for us out of duty. Look at verse 31, my favorite passage Uh, I'm sorry, verse 32. My favorite passage in this text, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So our heavenly father doesn't provide for us out of duty. Seeing his children in want and thinking, well, I have to be a righteous God. I have to be a just God. I have to be a holy God. And so it's right for me to provide this food. Here you go, kids. Here's some food. That's not what God does for us. Instead, he provides lavishly for us out of a desire to meet our needs. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We all do the things that we want to do at the end of the day. And so does God. But God's desires are perfectly pure and holy where ours are not. And so we know for certain, based on our own experience as sinful fallen people, will a father that desires to do something not do it? Absolutely not. A father that desires to provide for his children, that has good pleasure in providing for their needs, will do it. And so don't be afraid. Don't fear. It is your father's good pleasure to provide all of your needs. I love Psalm 31, I'm sorry, uh, 23, verse 1. Of course, the familiar psalm for us. But the New Living Translation simply states, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. And that is true. The National Institute of Mental Health estimates that 19.2 million American adults suffer from specific phobias. You can find a list of these phobias if you want some light reading this afternoon or perhaps a way to take a nap in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or more famously known as the DSM. 
Now, some of the fears listed are fairly common. Fear of heights, fear of flying, fear of spiders, fear of water, fear of snakes. That would be me. Others, less common. Fear of names. Fear of beards. Sorry, Doug. Fear of clouds. Fear of the color purple. And we can look at these things and recognize how irrational they are. But I would suggest to you that the most irrational fear is the Christian that doubts the Father's provision. Greater than the fear of beards is the Christian who doubts the Father's provision. We should use our anxiety as a gauge to discern how much do we trust our Heavenly Father? How much do we trust Him? And in moments where it's difficult, another hymn that comes to mind is The Heavenly Vision by Helen Limmel, also more familiarly known as Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the hymn writer says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Some of you have been struggling with anxiety for a long time. Fear has consumed your daily living. And perhaps you've just accepted it as the way God made you. But I want to implore with you this morning. I want to ask that you go to war against these anxieties by looking to Jesus. He has not saved us to live in fear. Instead, he says, do not be anxious do not worry. How do we do this? Well, first, we give our anxieties to God. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God cares for you. Give him your troubles, your fears, your worries, your anxieties. He will bear them up. A second thing we should be doing is journaling about God's provision. This has been a practice of Christians for a long time. Even back to the Old Testament, when we see the, the people of Israel raising Ebenezer's in the wilderness. Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance, as they remember God's deliverance. The truth is, we are all prone to forget God's kindness and his goodness to us. And if we write it down, we make a monument that we go back to and say, he provided there, he provided there, he provided there. Will he not also provide for me now? Spend time with God first in your day. Spend time with God first. I think this is the best thing that we can do to face the anxieties that the world inevitably throws at us. Spend time with God first. Jesus models this in Mark chapter 1 verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
If you want to be prepared for the kind of suffering and anxiety that comes, go to the Lord in prayer first. Finally, read about God's faithfulness in the lives of others. George Mueller's biography uh, titled Delighted in God by Roger Steer is a great place to start. Point number three, your heart will follow your treasure. So Jesus now comes to an imperative for the disciples and for us, and he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy, verse 33. Twice in Luke's gospel, we see the connection of selling our possessions and following Jesus. And this is one of those passages. The other is found in Luke 18, which we'll be at in a few weeks. In Luke 18, we see the rich young ruler, and Jesus says to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, it is hard to get to heaven when you have a lot of earthly things. And Jesus recognizes that and wants his disciples and wants us to inherit eternal life, to gain the kingdom. And so he instructs them, go sell all you have. These are former fishermen, tax collectors. They have very little as it stands now. And Jesus still says to them, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Perhaps this is another lesser to greater argument that we would make in our context today. Because the reality is, we sit as Christian people, as some of the most wealthy and affluent Christians in all of history. And God says to us, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Why? So that you might invest in something eternal, something greater than money market accounts, nice houses, college degrees, and all of the rest. There is a pressing to abandon the things of this world for the things that are of heaven. And will we be like the disciples in our passage today that faithfully followed Jesus to their very own demise? Or will we be like the rich young ruler who says, I hear you, God, but now my heart is sad because I'm not giving up anything. I'm not surrendering my life to you fully. I will take my money and my possessions and live the life I want to Brothers and sisters, heed the warning from our passage last week where a man stored up for himself great wealth and in the end had nothing. Because that's the pathway. That's the future. Store up, sell, store up for yourself treasure on earth and you will come to the end of your life and have nothing. And I don't want that for you and I don't want it for me. And we may be tempted to feel that that day is long away. But if the last two years have shown us anything, it's that that day is closer than we all think it is. 
And so here's the imperative. Here's the application for the text. If you trust your heavenly father, you will abandon your earthly goods and you will give them to people who are in desperate need of them. The treasure in heaven, much more valuable than treasure on earth. And Jesus continues to press the point when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's not just about having something when we get to heaven. It's about where our heart's going to be in the end. If you have no treasure in heaven, your heart is not there. Where our treasure is, our hearts will follow. So if you want to have assurance, if you're someone struggling with anxiety this morning, and that anxiety is related to the fact that you're not certain that God's going to save you in the end, you're trying your best to live a good life, and you're trying to have faith, if you want to aid your own assurance, put your treasure in heaven with this truth in mind, I know my heart is following my treasure. So we've got some tangible ways that we can do this together as brothers and sisters. Before we consider that, I want to briefly give you two illustrations of what this looks like when the church gives of its possessions. The first is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The early church comes together. In verse 32, we see... Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's a good day. There's no poor among them because of the generosity of the church. Justin Martyr also talks about this in his first apology, early Christian worship. He says, um, and those who prospered and wished to contribute what each thinks fit, uh, they give that and a collection is deposited with the ruler who takes care of the orphans and widows and those who on account of sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds and the stranger and the sojourner among us and in the, in the word, he is the guardian of all those who are in need." Brothers and sisters, let's not be deceived. Our money has not made us safe. Do you know that? Do you believe that? This passage is pushing to help us understand that your money will not make you safe. The only thing that makes us safe is the blood of our Savior. So let me offer you a couple of ways that we can apply this truth. First, once a month during our Lord's Supper services, we collect a benevolence offering at the door. And it could be that you would utilize that time in ministry as you're leaving, feeling filled up in your soul by what God has done for you in the service. You would say, out of an overflow of grace, I'm going to give my possessions to the poor. 
Very easy way to do that. Perhaps there are more personal needs of individuals that you know, or maybe you need to be seeking out those needs. What needs do we have among us? And how can we who have give to those who don't? There should not be. In fact, our mission statement says this. Our vision statement says this. Anyone destitute in our body because of gracious and generous sharing. Possible other way to apply this. Maybe you need to create a savings account and and start selling possessions, leveraging your funds into this account. And this account is going to be for the poor as you encounter them daily. Making good use of your funds and resources. We have a missions conference coming up. And there's nothing better we can invest our money in than seeing people come to know Christ. That's a great way to sacrificially give. I don't remember what our goal is this year, but I don't think there's any reason we should not meet and exceed it if this is true of us. If we're a people that say, my treasure's in heaven, so I can sell my boat, I can downsize my house, I can sell all the things that I have because I recognize that God is going to care for me. If you remember how we began this morning, Baden-Powell's statement, be prepared was his motto. Now over a hundred years old, and it's helped countless soldiers and boys handle wars on battlefield and wars they face in life. But I think Jesus would have a different motto for us to use based on this passage from Luke today. Instead of be prepared, I think he would tell us to build our, build our lives, all of, our, uh, all of its needs and fears around this statement, trust the Father. Trust the Father. This is the Christian motto. And that's what our Savior did. He modeled for us perfectly what it looks like to trust the Father. Now the question is, will you? Will we? Let's pray together. Father, this is a difficult text for us this morning. We confess that. We recognize that You have blessed us in many ways. We pray, Father, that you would give us a freedom from fear and anxiety, a freedom to let go of our possessions, that we might leverage what we have for the good of those around us, recognizing that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Father, may we trust our Savior Jesus and our good Heavenly Father, who desires to give us the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.